Okay, as Adam pointed out just a minute ago, he gave us a quick overview of what we covered last time, which was Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is the last week before he's crucified. And uh, he is becoming very popular with people. The crowds are, are out there. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. People are convinced by the miracles. He's coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and the people are are coming out with palm branches and and shouting, Blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, and laying the branches on the road. Uh, so uh, things are definitely uh, heating up here. I'm going to pick up the story in John chapter 12, reading in verses 17 to 34. I'm reading from the New King James. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came into this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So, uh, that's it. We'll stop right there and just outline the story. So some Greeks, some Gentiles are heard about Jesus. They hear about the miracles he's performing and they want to see him. Uh, they ask Philip, can we see Jesus? Philip and Andrew tell Jesus about this. And rather than saying, yes, they can see me or no, they can't see me, Jesus just launches into some teaching about his own death, which is soon to take place. So he just, he just starts talking about his death. So that's the story. Uh, he says, like a grain of wheat that must fall into the ground and, and die, that he must die and to produce, to produce much grain. So he's speaking in riddles or parables here. And, and in the form of riddles, he explains both the fact that he must die and also how he's going to be killed. He, Jesus is clearly troubled about what's about to take place, his crucifixion. However, he asks, rather than to be delivered from that, he asks that God will glorify his name through what's about to take place. And then the voice of God answers from heaven, I have glorified my name and will glorify it again. People are confused. Some people think it thundered. Some people think an angel speaking. Uh, but that's it. whatever happened there. And then he goes on to talk about how he must be lifted up 
Uh, and then there's this whole discussion among the people. Wait a minute, you're going to be lifted up. I thought that the Christ, if you're the Christ, the Christ when he came is supposed to be here forever. How are you going to be lifted up? That, that doesn't make sense. So I want to take so there's a lot, lot of things to cover here. And I want, to take, I want to take a look at three or four of the teachings that are in this passage here. The first one is Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies. So what he says in verses 24 and 25, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his wife will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So he, he's saying something about himself. But then there's a teaching that he's giving which pertains to others as well. Uh, so uh, he uses a parable from gardening or agriculture here. So if anybody has ever grown anything, grass, flowers, anything from seed, you can understand what he's talking about here. And he gives the example of wheat. So if, if you have a package of seeds, if you buy seeds at the store and you never plant them, nothing happens. You've got 100 seeds in there, you've got 100 seeds at the end of the season. The only way to multiply what you have is you have to basically bury these seeds. The seeds have to die. So the only way for seed to multiply is to be dyed and be buried. And he uses this as an illustration about himself. And that the idea is that through the death of this one seed, there will be produced many, many seeds as a result. So Jesus is explaining, I have to die in order to produce a great harvest in the future, just like a seed has to die. That's the point that he's making. So he, one person must die in order that a great harvest in the future will take place. Um, and this is a theme that we see over and over again in the book of John and throughout the scriptures. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The idea was that one, the Lamb of God is the Passover Lamb, that one would die to save many. Like the Passover Lamb died and the blood of the Lamb saved all the people who were in the house of the Lamb in, in the Exodus story. This idea that, that Jesus, that one would die for many. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 20, verses 27 and 28. He says, Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So one person giving his life as a ransom to save many people. Now, I've heard Christians argue from time to time and actually get rather agitated about is why did Jesus have to die? What's, this is the question of the atonement. Why did he have to die? Why couldn't God have just said repent and, and, and you're forgiven? Why was it necessary for Jesus to die? And I'll hear two explanations given and maybe you've heard one or both of these too. The one explanation which is probably more popular today is that God is, is angry with us for sinning, and uh, in order for God's justice to be served, that someone has to receive the penalty, the sentence for the sin of death, and Jesus stepped in to take the penalty on our behalf. So he is receiving the wrath of God for our sin. So this, the, the idea is that the sacrifice is being made to God who is, who is angry with us for our sin. That's one view. Uh, that's the... Uh, sometimes referred to as the penal substitution view. So we're guilty. The sentence has been passed on us of death, and Jesus takes our place to carry out the sentence and satisfy God's wrath. That's one reason why would one person have, why did Jesus have to die? Another one, which is actually an even older view, it goes back to, back to the early Christians, is the picture that Satan took us captive as a result of our own sin. And Satan took us captive, he basically owned us, and that what Jesus did was he sweet traded places. Basically, uh, he served as a ransom. It's like, like we were kidnapped by the bad guy, and the ransom price was Jesus himself. So Jesus gave himself 
over as a ransom. And that's what we just read here. The Son of Man didn't come to serve, uh, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Matthew chapter 20. So that's, I, I can see that in the scripture. So some people uh, look at it one way, some people look at it the other way. This is sometimes called the classical view of the atonement or uh, the, the ransom view of the atonement. Those who have ever C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that's very much along the line of Aslan is, is the one who is, uh, is giving his life to the witch that, who represents Satan. So that's the idea. So two views, whichever one you hold, or if you hold both of them, uh, to me, it doesn't really matter. It's not worth fighting or arguing over. But the question of, just, just the question of why did one have to die for many? that people wonder about sometimes. Why was this necessary for Christ to die? Uh, of course, Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant who bears our sins and suffers for us. He was led to death, and it talks about, it says, it says in Isaiah 53, the righteous one who serves many shall bear their sins, therefore he shall inherit many and divide the spoils with the strong. So the idea that one sacrificing and dying to, to be able to, uh, to give a blessing to many. And of course, uh, in a recent lesson in John chapter 11, Caiaphas, the high priest, was with bad intent uttering something that was actually a prophecy. He said, it's better for one man to die for the whole nation than basically that all of us die. And that was, it was a true statement, although he was, he was setting out to have Jesus murdered. So this, this whole idea of one seed falls to the ground and dies to produce a great harvest and the salvation of many. Uh, is contained in that little parable about the seed there that Jesus gives. But Jesus is not only telling something about himself and what's going to happen, but he's also teaching something significant for us. Because he said in, in, in John... John 12, 25, he said, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So he says, I am going to have to die and give up my life, and those who follow me are going to have to do the same thing in some way. So what does that mean? He says, whoever loves his life will lose it, but who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, who hates their life? I mean, unless you're having, if you're having, I don't think he's talking about hating your life, having a lousy life or a miserable life. He's talking about something else here, obviously. So, there are a few other places where Jesus uses similar language. Let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 10. This idea of hating your life and giving up your life. Try to understand what Jesus means because he's teaching here something that's, that's important for us to understand too. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32, Jesus says, Therefore whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I'll also deny before my Father who's in heaven. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those in his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So here... This is when Jesus is sending out the apostles and he's warning them about persecution that's going to happen, that they're going to be hated. And he's telling them, look, don't deny me when you're persecuted because you should expect you're going to have opposition from even members of your own family are going to hate you if you want to follow me. And that you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. You're going to have to hate your own life if you want to follow me. That's what he's saying. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Uh, in Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, and his own life cannot be my disciple. Mark 8, 35, Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So all this discussion about hating your life, Paul, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, This is a faithful saying, If we died with him, we shall also live with him. Now it talks about where we die with him, we're buried with him in baptism, in Romans 6, and elsewhere in the scriptures. Uh, but uh, this whole idea of, of dying with Christ, hating our life, um, uh, it, it was just kind of the, the whole idea that becoming a Christian and you're and you're going to have a wonderful life. It just kind of just just smashes right at the foundation of that. This is something quite different. The context of most of the teaching like this is in the face of persecution, mm. and uh, maybe two thirds of the Christians in the world, or uh, let's say two thirds of the two thirds of the people in the world, live in countries where they're facing rather significant persecution if they want to be Christians. That's just the way it is right now. And so while we may not think that these scriptures apply to us, maybe they will at some point in time in our lives here as things change in the United States, or you may end up going to a country where this is very much uh, a challenge, or someone listening to this message online may, may be in that situation right now. Uh, Tertullian was a church leader in North Africa in the early 200s, and he was a he wrote a lot. and And he, I was reading from his apology. And his apology, the early Christian apology, is very interesting because they're defending the faith to people who don't believe in the world around them, and so they're defending against all the things the Christians are being accused of. And so you learn a lot about what's going on by their answers. And their, and, and their discussion, things they talk about. One of the things that Tertullian talks about, he said, every time something bad happens in the Roman Empire, guess who gets blamed? The Christians. He said, if, if it's flooding in Rome and the Tiber River goes up and is, 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 is coming up to the walls of the city of Rome, who gets blamed? The Christians. Because the Christians are the ones who are not worshiping all these other gods. He said the Christians get blamed if that happens. On the other hand, if there is a drought and the Nile River starts going down, who gets blamed? The Christians. He says no matter what happens, the cry is Christians to the lions. Okay, whatever bad thing happens. You know, our day, if the, we, have, we have some bad weather, what does everybody say? Climate change. Okay, let's, uh, you know, let's... Uh, uh, have carbon taxes or something like that. They blame it on uh, they blame it on uh, people exhaling or driving cars or doing something. Okay, climate change that's the problem. But back then it was no matter what happened with with the climate, uh, they blamed the Christians because they said obviously the gods are upset with us and you guys are are causing problems here. And he came back. And he said, "Look, that's ridiculous." He said, first of all, before any of us were around here, all kinds of bad things happened, completely <laughs> apart from us. Right. You know, Pompeii got incinerated by Mount Vesuvius. Mount Vesuvius blew up and wiped out Pompeii. Hannibal crossed the Alps and attacked Rome. Terrible, all kinds of terrible things happened. Sodom and Gomorrah got wiped out. He said, all kinds of terrible things happened before there were any Christians. So don't blame us is the first thing he said. The second thing he said was, he said, look, you know, if, uh, if uh, actually we've had kind of a, a moderating influence, God's pretty upset with all the horrible things that people are doing on the face of the earth, and the fact that we're out there and we're praying for the world, we've had kind of a calming influence. There's less wars and less disasters going on for the fact that the Christians are here. So don't blame us and knock off this Christians to the lions every time Something goes wrong around you. Don't blame us. So he, he, he hit, he, he, it's a good logical argument. But then he also said, he was also talking about this idea of Jesus' teaching about we need, to, we need to be willing to hate our lives and give up our lives for the gospel. Um, and I'm going to read from, this is from his apology in chapter 50. 
he, uh, he's talking about persecution that they're facing. And he says, well, it's quite true that our desire is to suffer, but it's in the way that a soldier longs for war. He said, no one indeed suffers willingly, since suffering necessarily implies fear and danger. Yet the man who objected to the conflict both fights with all his strength and when victorious he rejoices in the battle because he reaps from it glory and spoil. It is our battle to be summoned to your tribunals that they are under fear of execution. We may battle for the truth. But the day is won when the object of the struggle is gained. The victory of ours gives us the glory of pleasing God and the spoil of eternal life. Spoil means the reward from the battle. But we are overcome. Yes, when we have obtained our wishes... Therefore, we conquer in dying. We go forth victorious at the very time we are subdued. He says, we are warriors in a battle, but our battle is, is that we're out for, for victory and for spoil. But our spoil is eternal life. And the battle that we engage in is when we're put before your tribunals. And the battle is a battle that we don't deny Christ. And he speaks to the rulers and he says, But go zealously on, good presidents. You will stand higher with the people if you sacrifice the Christians at their wish. Kill us. Torture us. Condemn us. Grind us to dust. Your injustice is the proof that we are innocent. He goes on and says, Nor does your cruelty, however exquisite, avail you. It is rather a temptation to us. The oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of the Christians is seed. He said, Many of your writers exhort the courageous to bear the pain of death as Cicero, Seneca, Diogenes, Pyrrhus, uh, Callinicus. And yet their words do not find so many disciples as the Christians do. Teachers not by words, but by their deeds. That very obstinacy you rail against us is the preceptress. For who that contemplates it is not excited to inquire what's at the bottom of it? Who after inquiry does not embrace our doctrines? And when he has embraced them, desires not to suffer that he may become partaker of the fullness of God's grace, that he may obtain from God complete forgiveness by giving in exchange his blood. So uh, the Christians in the beginning in the church in the West were facing extreme persecution. Things have kind of flipped right now, so the Christians in the East are more facing persecution, but it could flip back the other way again, or both sides could face severe persecution. And uh, we see... And in, in, in this story here, the attitude that the Christians had, it says we are involved in a great contest. You know, a lot of people in Boston are all excited today about there's a great contest going on. This is the Super Bowl and the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. I was driving around one, Route 128 last night and I saw a sign, a giant billboard that said, end the drought. 97 days without a world championship in Boston. So this is classic Boston arrogance is that, you know, the, the, the Boston Red Sox won the World Series uh, 97 days ago. And they said, you know, we're bored. We haven't had a championship in the last 97 days. Can we please have another championship? People are wrapped up in Boston in the phony battle between two groups of overpaid millionaires playing a kid's game. I love football. I played it as a kid, you know, pick up football, no helmets, and, you know, fortunately didn't get brain damage in the process, but <laughs> I love playing football. But, but it, it's a people, there's something in us that craves a battle. And I think that the sports is, is one outlet that gets people off track. I think politics is another outlet. I've been sucked into that vortex in the past. You know, the, the, the battle between the two sides, between good and evil, and, uh, uh, or wars. People get all caught up in wars. You know, the, the news stations love it when there's a war because everybody tunes in who's going to win the war. It's a battle between the two sides. It's us and the Chinese or us and the Russians or the Iranians, whoever it is. 
the United States government. Uh, but the real battle, Tertullian understood, the real battle is against the forces of evil in this world for the Christians, that we are being tested. And, and in his case, they were being tested with death when they're facing severe persecution, are they going to stand up and be and win the battle by being killed and win the spoil of eternal life and the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life? That's what that was their attitude is we're in a battle here and we are excited about this. We don't look forward to uh, to, to to suffering, but if it comes, we're not going to shrink back from it. This is what we're here for. And that's what Jesus said. Jesus said that you have to hate your life and you have to follow him. You have to be willing to take up your cross. So Jesus said not only did he have to die to bring a great harvest, but he called us that we're going to have to do the same thing. We're going to have to be willing to give up our lives as well to follow him. Uh, in Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, it talks about this. You know, it talks about the, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. What does it mean for us to hate our lives and be willing to give them up? Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 32. But recall the former days in which you were illuminated when you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. So this is he's quoting from, Hebrews writers quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, it says, Faith is a way of life. It's not something you believe for an instant. For an instant, it's a way of life. The righteous or the just shall live by faith and not shrink back when the tough times and the challenges come. Amen. Hebrews chapter eleven gives a long list of examples of heroes of faith from the Old Testament. I'm going to pick it up at the end of that discussion, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, halfway through verse 35. It says, others, and it's talking about all the people of faith who faced persecution and suffering. It says, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, were tempted, slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Let's pick it up in, in, in chapter 12. Here's the admonition for us. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You've not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God's dealing with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father is not chastened? But if you're without chastening, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate sons. So uh, 
The point that he's making is some lessons for us is living by faith is a way of life. We've got to be willing to suffer. We've got to, and what does it mean to, 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 to hate our own lives? Well, the hero, heroes and heroines of the faith, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were afflicted, they were tormented, and they were pointed the example of Jesus for the joy set before him endured the cross. Why did Jesus die? What was the joy that was set before him? The one grain died to produce multiple grains. I think the joy that's set before Jesus in dying the cross is that he would lead many of us. He would see, he was willing to die the one seed because he's looking forward to a, a magnificent harvest of souls. He's looking forward to us. And that's what gave him the joy of knowing that, that, that we could be saved through his death. And also understand, it says that whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he received. You know what it means to scourge somebody? It means he's a whipping, you know, whacking, whacking somebody. Is it, <coughs> is, it, is it God is chastening and even scourging us that we should expect a life of suffering and challenges and to be refined by that? And to be trained by that because God wants to produce not only a harvest of many souls, but he wants to perfect those of us who are Christians through suffering. He wants to refine us and perfect us. So I think this is all parts of what does it mean to be willing to, to hate our lives and to follow the example of Jesus, the one seed who was willing to die to produce many, many seeds. Second teaching in this, this lesson is it says that the, Jesus says, now the ruler of this world is cast out. Well, who's the ruler of this world? When Jesus is being tempted by Satan in Luke chapter 4, Satan says to him, he says, he shows Jesus in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I'll, this has all been given to me and I will, it's all been delivered over to me and it's glory and I'll give it all to you if you bow down and worship me. He said, it's mine, it's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. You bow down and worship me, I'm giving it all to you. Now Satan's a liar. He's the father of lies. However, Jesus said, now the ruler of this world will be cast down. Jesus says, Satan is the ruler of this world. That's what he's talking about. So that part of what Satan was saying, when Satan says, I have all the kingdoms of this world and all their glory, all their power, all their money, all the governments. I've got it all. He's not lying there. Whether he would have given it to Jesus if Jesus worshipped him, of course, Jesus couldn't possibly do that. But, uh, but uh, anyway... Jesus talked in Matthew chapter 12, 26. He said, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Satan is the ruler of a kingdom. He's the ruler of the kingdoms of this world. Uh, Paul talked about that in Acts chapter 26 when he's, he's uh, defending himself. And he says that uh, Jesus had told him, uh, I'll deliver you from the Jewish people as well as the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness and light, the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified in me. So the picture is that Jesus in coming and dying and producing many seeds would also defeat the ruler of this world. He would defeat Satan. The third teaching, it says, Jesus would be lifted up. In John 12, 32 and 33, he says, If I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Now, obviously, we know what that means now. I will be lifted up. Jesus would be lifted up on the cross. I mean, how many ways can you kill somebody where you have to lift them up from the earth? So Jesus told us in advance in a riddle he'd be lifted up in the cross. He said this once before in the Gospel of John. He indicated that he would be lifted up. Does anyone, like Adam for example, remember where Jesus talked about something being lifted up by Moses in the desert so that uh, is a foreshadowing of how he would be lifted up? 
Oh, 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 the Red Sea. <clears throat> well, it wasn't the Red Sea. It was something kind of reddish, though. I'll give you that. So what was the thing that was lifted up on a pole that everyone had to look at? The Ark? No, it was actually, it was the bronze snake. It was the serpent in the wilderness that Moses, in Numbers 21, God told Moses the people were being bitten by snakes and they were dying of poisonous snake bite. And God says, take a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Lift it up. And everyone who looks, where everyone can see it, everyone looks at it when they're bitten by the snake, they can look at it. So Jesus said that that was foreshadowing. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so he would have to lift it up as well. I'll throw a little uh, something in from a future lesson I hope to teach. In the story of the whole idea of one person dying to save many people, I think of another example in the story of Jonah. Jonah's on the boat. There's a terrible storm. Everybody on the boat is afraid that they're going to drown, that this is the, the storm is smashing the boat. The people are afraid. They're crying out to all their gods, and they, they, they stumble on Jonah. He's asleep, and they say, crawl on your god. What are you doing here? And he says, and he had told them, well, actually, I worship the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. That's the one I worship. And I'm running away from him, and he's mad at me. So they say, all right, what do we need to do here? And he says, oh, oh throw me in the sea. He says, throw me in the sea. But he says one more thing before he says, throw me into the sea. Your excellent answer. He says... Doesn't say three. He says, throw me in the sea, but he says one more thing. He says, lift me up and throw me into the sea. That's what he says. He says, lift me up and throw me into the Now, why does he have to say the lift me up part? Well, Jonah was foreshadowing Jesus. The Son of Man had to be lifted up. Jonah was lifted up and then thrown, cast into death came out on the third day as a foreshadowing of Jesus, as Jesus explains in Matthew chapter 12 and chapter 16. So this whole idea of that one man would be lifted up to save everybody else and cast into death, I believe is foreshadowed in the story of Jonah. Just, just threw that one in there. Now, we take the crucifixion of Jesus as a matter of course. As Christians, I grew up Catholic. There were crucifixes in houses. There were crucifixes in the church. You go to a Catholic church, there's a giant crucifix behind the altar with, with a representation of Jesus on there. But two groups of people have a hard time with Jesus, being, with Jesus being crucified. The Jews, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. Their thinking is how could the Messiah have been crucified. Bad enough to be killed, but being hung on a cross is a death that is cursed by God in Deuteronomy 21. This is like a cursed death. Bad enough to be killed. And I'm reading in, in Justin, Justin Moore's dialogue with Trifo. Justin's a Christian. He's a Samaritan. He's having an argument with Trifo. They're going back and forth. And Trifo, Trifo hears what Justin Martyr is saying, but he says, we just can't accept the idea that the Messiah could have died such a horrible death being, being nailed to the cross by the people. Um, and, and, and so the Jews struggle with this idea. How could they have killed the Messiah and how could he have died such a horrible death? The Muslims also, in the Quran it says, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. It only looked like it. And of course, he didn't really raise from the dead. Uh, of course, there are many prophecies throughout Scripture which talk about, which foreshadow, written hundreds of years beforehand, the whole story of the Passover lamb. The, the story in Genesis 22, we talked about this about in, in our Genesis series about Abraham's sacrificing of Isaac and taking the wood up to the place uh, where he's going to be given over to death. Isaiah 52 and 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 69. There's so many prophecies that talk about Jesus about the Messiah being crucified. Now, I want to take a look at one more thing here. It says that the Jews, when they heard about Jesus being lifted up, were confused. They said, wait a minute, you can't be lifted up. The, the Christ is supposed to be here forever. Now, what are they thinking? I think what they're probably thinking is, I'm putting myself in their shoes, lifted up, they're probably thinking, 
he's going to be lifted up like, like Elijah was lifted up or like Enoch was lifted up, meaning taken up. You know, take, he's going to be taken away from us. And, of course, he's talking about being lifted up and, and, and being dying on the cross. It's saying, well, you can't be lifted up. The Christ is supposed to be here forever. Don't you know the scriptures? And uh, so throw a question out there. Why would they think that the Christ, when he came, would be there forever? Why would they think that? I'll tell you why I think they would think it. Let's turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. First Chronicles 17, 2 Samuel uh, 7 is very, a very similar uh, passage. This is where David wants to build a temple for God. God says through Nathan, no, you're not the one who's going to do it. And then he, he utters a very interesting prophecy. It was a prophecy about the Messiah. Uh, we know that from uh, uh, Luke chapter 1 that the angel... Uh, quotes this prophecy to Mary, basically. Um, and let's start reading in verse, First uh, Chronicles 17, verse 11. So Nathan is speaking to David the king. It shall be when your days are fulfilled and you're laid to rest with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you. He will be out of your belly. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, he shall be my son. I will not take my mercy from him as I took it from those who were before you. I will establish him in my house and my kingdom forever. His throne shall be established forever. So, I think that's why they said, wait a minute. It says, it says in the scriptures that the Christ will be here forever. You can't be lifted up. You can't go away if you're the Christ. So I think that's what's going on. They didn't understand that there would be two comings of Christ. That Christ would come the first time to suffer and die, and he'd come the second time, the second coming of Christ, is to bring judgment and to, to reign forever. Uh, let's continue in John chapter 12. Starting at verse 35. Then Jesus said to them, A little longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Verse 37. But although he'd done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, understand with their hearts, and turn that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So there's discussion about light. Jesus is coming, is light into the world. Of course, this goes back to Isaiah chapter 9, where it talks about those who dwell in the land of darkness will see a great light. A great light is coming into the world. A great light is shining in fulfillment of the prophecy, Isaiah 9. Uh, in John chapter 3, Jesus said, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. When the light of truth comes, people are either going to confess and repent their sins and go into the light or they'll shrink back into the darkness. That's, that's, the, way, that's the way it works. So he quotes from, and then he quotes from Jesus from two passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 53 the first one, Lord, who has believed our report? This is the beginning of this discussion about the suffering servant. And the point he's making is most people aren't going to believe when the suffering servant comes. That's the first point he makes by quoting from Isaiah chapter 53. And the second point, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 6, where it says he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Otherwise, they might open their eyes and believe and he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 6. 
Let's, well, we're going to close by, by uh, let's turn to Isaiah 6, which, which should be the last scripture that we look at in this lesson. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is in the throne room. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. So keep in mind, this is written about 750 years before birth of Jesus. The house was full of his glory. Around him stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The lintel was lifted up by the voice of those who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, because I am pierced to the heart. For being a man and having unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. For I saw the King, the Lord of hosts, with my eyes. Then one of the seraphim was sent to me. He had a live coal in his hand, which he took with the tongs of the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your lawlessness is taken away, and your sin is cleansed. I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go to this people? So I said, Behold, here am I. Send me. And he said, Go tell this people, You shall indeed hear, but not understand. You shall indeed see, but not perceive. For the heart of this people has become insensitive, that their ears hear with difficulty. They have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and I should heal them. So Isaiah is in the throne room. He sees the Lord with the seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy. Two questions here. But it says in the New Testament in John, in John chapter 12, the Lord has blinded them and hardened their hearts. And the passage in Isaiah chapter 6 that Jesus is quoting here, Whose fault is it that the people can't see and can't understand? Okay, it says clearly here in, in, uh, in verse 10, this is from the Septuagint, the heart of this people has become insensitive. Their ears hear with difficulty. They have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes. The people have closed their eyes. They've hardened their hearts. Okay, why does it say God blinded them and God hardened their hearts if the people closed their own eyes? So it's the same, same situation we have in uh, the story of the Exodus where Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And early Christians understood this. They said God, that, that, that God's, uh, uh, God's message, God's discipline is like the heat of the sun. When the heat shines on butter or wax, it softens. But when the heat of the sun shines on mud or clay, it hardens. So you can say that God, the sun, is both hardening the clay and softening the wax. It's doing the same thing to both, but it's the nature of the heart that determines whether God's discipline will harden or soften the person. So our choice is, are we going to have a heart that is like wax or butter that softens and melts when God's discipline and God's word hits it? Or are we going to have a heart like mud or clay which hardens when the word of the Lord comes in and the light of the Lord comes? And that was the problem with the people is that they hardened their heart that God also could say God hardened their heart because they had the wrong kind of heart. So we get to choose what kind of heart we have and that will respond accordingly to the discipline of the Lord. Now, why did Isaiah say, basically, I'm toast? He said, I have seen the Lord. I'm, an, I'm a sinful man. I am done for. Why did he say that? The reason he said that is because no man can see the Lord's face and live. That was revealed in Exodus chapter 33. When Moses asked to see God, God said, you know what you're asking for. 
Anyone who sees my face will be incinerated immediately. You're done. You can't see me. It says the same thing in the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. Is that a clear statement? Is there any room for doubt? No one at any time has ever seen God. Uh, it says the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. It speaks about the Father. It says, whom no man has seen or can see. You can't see the Father. Well, let's back up here. Who did Isaiah see? Who did Isaiah see? Isaiah chapter 6, it says, In the year Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. The house was full of his glory. Around him stood seraphim. And then verse 3, One cried to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Who did he see? He said he saw the Lord. It said he saw the Lord. Let's go back and look at the last verse that we, we had in John chapter 12 verse 41 which quotes from this passage in Isaiah chapter 6. Who did Isaiah see? After quoting from Isaiah chapter 6, it says in verse 41, These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who did Isaiah see seated on the throne? He couldn't see the Father. It's impossible. It says no man can see God. No man has ever seen God. You can't see the Father. He saw the Son of God. The Son of God appears several times to people in the Old Testament. We saw him, you know, he goes, he talks to Abraham in the story right before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. There's several other places where the Son of God appears. The early Christians understood this. You can't see the Father, it's impossible, but you can see the Son. The Son of God was pre-existent and is referred, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. According to John 41, they saw, Isaiah saw the Son of God, which is why he thought he saw God. He was done for. He saw the Son of God. No one can see the Father, but we can see the Son. Okay? People of Jehovah's Witness background or other people, Muslims, say, well, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the New Testament does it say that Christ is God. Well, let just turn to Isaiah chapter 6, read the passage and say, who did Isaiah see here? It says clearly, he saw his glory. He's just talking about the Son of God. It's talking about Jesus, that he saw Jesus here. Um, this helps me to appreciate more fully in Philippians 2, where it talks about Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but took on human nature and took even the nature of, of a servant. And he was willing to suffer and die on the cross for us. When you realize who the Son of God was and, and to what degree he humbled himself, and that's it's a challenge that Paul is giving when you consider what he did to have the same attitude in our hearts, to imitate his humility in our relations one with another. So... Uh, let's let's stop right there, and uh, we'll pick it up uh, uh, in in four, verse forty two next time. Amen.